This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, Takes a, a hop off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite, and it's in. Kind of like that. Well, I would like to welcome former touring professional and current caddy on the Champions Tour, Sandy Armour, to the Sub 70 podcast. Sandy, I really appreciate you taking the time this evening to do this with us. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Well, Jason, I look forward to it as well. Anything you want to talk about to start off with, uh, fire away. Well, my first one is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to put your golf analyst hat on. Um, assuming you watch the U.S. Open, Pebble Beach, great venue, you know, Woodland kind of taking it to the next level. What's your sort of overall thoughts on, on you know, Gary kind of getting over the finish line and just the, the USGA setup with Pebble, and, and how do you think it kind of played out last week of, you know, all the factors of a, of a new major champion? And to me, it seems like the USGA finally got this uh, – course set up somewhat right yeah the the usga was not uh a factor either with rules or a couple of them they've lost control of the golf course through the weather it's really hard to mess up pebble beach i mean the only thing you can do there is turn the water off and mother nature you know, is part of that so what a fabulous layout they look like they set it up the guy that played the best won there weren't any car wrecks or anything, you know, that made it uh, controversial. It was, it was a beautiful tournament, and Gary Woodland he got his uh, he got his short game together, and you know he's won a couple of times, uh, three times I think he's won before this. I believe he he might have finished I want to say eighth at at uh, Beth Page Black. Am I correct? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, he was right up there, and he played really well last year at the PGA. So he's kind of had this, you know, in these big moment tournaments, it seems like he sort of was peaking for these big tournaments, right? Like it's, it just seemed like he was coming into his own, and, you know, this week he obviously put it all together. But, yeah, he's been kind of knocking a little bit at the bigger tournaments. I believe the announcers stated that he was like 169th in scrambling recently, and he was first in scrambling yeah. at Pebble. Yep, Correct. Right. I mean, so there you have a you got a big turnaround in a short game compared to his competition. I mean, the average golfer watching him chip and putt might think, "Oh, that guy's damn good." But when you compare him to his competition, he was on like the 169th in scrambling. So something clicked for him chipping. I heard he didn't miss a putt under five feet at Pebble Beach. That's that's quite an achievement, quite an achievement at Pebble Beach. Yes, especially with those greens, right? Especially being late in the day, especially Saturday, Sunday, right? Because he's playing in the you know the last groups to 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 putt uh-huh. that well under that pressure with those Poa greens. Uh, it's a it's yeah. I'm happy for the guy. Like he seems like a good guy. I think it's going to be a popular win. And like I said, it was sort of nice to see the golf to the golf unfolding without any sort of controversy of them losing a green or a goofy ruling. It just seemed like the guys, they let them go out and play. I was going to ask you this. Are you okay with the U S open of someone shooting 10, 12 under par? I mean, you've seen a lot of golf in your life. Do you, sure. It doesn't bother you that it's not one or two under or one or two. You know, to me, par is, par is just a way to 
for the spectator, rather it be other golfers looking at their competition, that's just an easy way to judge who's ahead as opposed to it saying, well, this guy's at 149 shots and this guy's at 152 shots. I don't understand why they take down some par fives and make them par fours just to get that par around 70 or 71. Like the second hole at Pebble Beach is, you know, it was designed so that you can get off to a nice start. If you're hitting the ball well early, you can, you can make a couple of birdies in the first, second, third hole. Right. Yep. Then all now all of a sudden you've got the second hole as a monster par four. And they've done that, not just them, the PGA's done it a couple of times. And it's not, some of those greens are not designed for a long iron to enter the green and hold the green. Or if you had a good shot with a four iron, if the green, it should stay on the green. But if the green is designed for a short iron, on a par five approach, that's, uh, you know, I understand they're trying to challenge the best players in the world. And I get, I get all that, but some greens are not really designed. And that green in particular is, as all the greens of Pebble are very small. And, you know, I think that course we're designed for the guys to give them a, the guy that's hit the ball early in the round can, you know, make a few birdies. Yeah, I, I, I've been fortunate enough to play it a couple of times, and I agree. you got to kind of get it, you know, maybe one through six or seven, and then that golf course starts. But like I said, it's iconic. Oh. It's a great golf course. I, I thought it was, you know, it was a – and I thought Fox actually did a really good job. Your, your man Olin Brown did a great job with the broadcast, and the team was good. So, yeah, it was an it yeah, was enjoyable U.S. Open without controversy, and I'm happy for Gary. Like I said, all the guys I know who know him – Really said he's a good guy and he, he seems to be that way. So he kind of, he, he so to me as kind of the uh, remember Dustin Johnson. They kept saying you know he drives it great, he drives it great, he drives it. The short game's not all that, and he tightened up his short game. I think Gary Woodland is following the same suit. He's always been a long, very good driver of the golf ball with long clubs, and uh, you know he is a very nice guy. I believe it'll. Like you said, he'll be a popular winner. Obviously, with the scrambling stats, he's tightened up his short game and his putting and chipping. I guess I didn't see the last couple of holes. I was traveling up here to Wisconsin for our, our uh, American Family Insurance event that Steve Stricker puts on, and that's where I'm talking to you from is Madison, Wisconsin. And I didn't get to see. I heard he hit a chip shot. I believe it was on 17. Unbelievable. It was just unbelievable under the pressure. Yeah. Under yeah. the pressure with tight, short grass underneath a golf ball and slick, firm greens. Your nerves, you got to, the only thing that, nothing is going to calm your nerves completely at that point. But if you have a lot of confidence, you can calm them a bit. He could have sat there with a bucket of balls and not hit a better shot. And it was, you know, the right shot, the little open 60 with check right over the ridge because he's on the right side of the green. And, you know, you know, you played and caddied and played in that golf yeah. course. I mean, it's, you got to land it just yeah. over that slope and it checked and it just, it rolled to two inches. Like I said, he, he played like a champion when he needed to play like a champion. It was, it was solid. He played really, really well. I spoke with David Toms this morning. 
and he shot four over and missed the cut. He was the reigning, or he is the reigning U.S. Senior Open champion. That's how he got to play at Pebble. And he's not nearly a long hitter. He shot four over, and he was describing the ninth hole to me at 522 or 25 yards. And the second round, he had 250 yards to the hole. Yeah, I was going to, because I was watching Woodland play that, and he was still having 200, you know, I was watching him on Saturday, and he piped a little, you know, baby cut, but just killed it. He still had two spins in, so I imagine, you know, somebody like David Toms would be 50 behind him at this point. It would almost be impossible for yeah. Toms to play it effectively, trying to hit to that green from 250 out. Well, and from 250, and that particular hole, there is no room to lay up. No, no. No, there's not. You'd have to lay up. You'd have to lay up back a hundred yards from the front edge. You couldn't. You couldn't try and force it up to the right front part of the green, and to where you're chipping or putting up the hill, up the green. And if you land short and lay it up, you, that fairway kicks straight left down into that tall rough short of the bunker. Right. <laughs> it, that's a, it's a brutal place to be. You hit a good drive, and you have 250 to another very small green. <laughs> yeah, because what's David Thomas hit off the tee anymore? 270, 275, maybe. I mean, that's that's tough to play. Yeah, David David Thomas could he could compete at say Colonial or Hilton Head. Yep. Some of the courses that are, that are 7,000, 7,200 yards, and pretty flat. He can compete pretty well out there. These these guys on the Champions Tour, I believe this is the third most challenging tour in the world. I told Colin Montgomery when he first came out to the Champions Tour, I said, don't expect a cakewalk out here. These guys, when we go to Pebble Beach, we play it all the way back except for 9 and 13. Well, absolutely, right? Like, I don't think the average golfer knows or average golf fan knows how good the quality of golf, and I've probably said this nine million times in the podcast, and people are tired of me hearing it. But you go out and watch <laughs> your, your guys go play from seventy one hundred yards, and then what? Go shoot six under par each day and finish up at fifteen, seventeen, eighteen under par. A, a, a zero oh, handicap yeah. would be thirty shots behind them. It wouldn't be Most close. Definitely. Yeah, I mean the quality of play and how good they hit and the effort they put in, and you know a lot of people think it's uh, you know dinners and wine and. Go out there on a Tuesday and watch the hours like you're probably putting in, you know, from a caddy standpoint and in and, the, and, you know, mapping out the golf course, you know, at University Ridge and the work Owen's putting in. Like, I mean, it is serious business still. And those guys are all competitors. They have been their entire lives. There is no way they're just sort of half-assing it out there, you know, strolling through the park. No, it's like, it's high-level golf, really high-level golf. And oh. one of the hardest tours to get on as well, right? I mean... The competition to be exempt out there is staggering. It's a, I believe the qualifying school is what four spots or five spots. Yeah, you have to have earned to be to turn fifty and be exempt on this tour. I believe you have to have earned somewhere around sixteen million dollars in career money. Yeah, an X amount of starts, and I mean, there's ways to get out there, but it is an exclusive club for them to say, "Here you go, you're exempt till you're you know sixty years old." Those guys can play. Those guys can. Oh, one thousand percent. And when play. they come down, when they when they come down the stretch on Sunday, almost everybody on this tour, other than say uh, Scott Perrell, who's playing fabulous golf, 
have won numerous times on the regular tour and they know how to play their game to where they don't make bogeys coming down the stretch. They're making birdies. It's, it's funny you say that. I, I had um, uh, Tom Pernice Jr. on and after he won with Scott Hoke. And, you know, Scott Hoke has not won a professional event a long time, injuries and all the rest of it. And I, and I asked Tom, yep. I said, when you guys got into the hunt, did Scott Hoke turn into Scott Hoke? And he said, 1,000%. Scott Hoke does not forget how to win and get, you know, and as the pressure got going and they, you know, were going on Sunday, he didn't get worse. He got better from it. And you, you don't win that much around the world for as long as somebody like Scott Hoke won without knowing how to get the job done. And he, oh. you know, Tom said he played fantastic. So it's exactly what you're saying, that those guys have been there so many times and won at the highest level so often that it's interesting, right? Because you're out there. You don't see guys fall apart on the Champions Tour coming down the stretch. It's usually somebody plays great to beat the other guy who's also playing really well. I don't know if you have right. that perspective as well, but they just, they just are, they're too good of players for such a long period that they know how to win. And yeah, they might get beat, but they don't beat themselves or the moment never gets too big. Is, is that a fair statement? That's uh, quite a fair. This, as you commented earlier, the, the, the caliber of golfer you have to be, there's the, the listeners that are listening in, they may not even remember a man named Steve Jones. Steve Jones won a U.S. Open in eight other tour events. Right. And he has a problem getting into the field. Right. That's how competitive it is. Yes. Well, let me ask you about I mean, Caddy. He's a major, major, major champion and can't, can't get in the field in half the tournaments. Oh, yeah, like Paul Lowry. Anyway. Yeah, no, Paul Lowry, right? Not in. Um, oh. Uh, trying to you think. Know who, uh, you know who's, you know who's been playing a bunch of, uh, yeah, Sean, he's, he's, you know, trying to get in tournaments. He was uh, playing some of the web events and trying to get his game ready is uh, Cabrera. He turns 50, and he's, I saw him. I went caddy for Owen's son in Panama earlier this year. It was his first start on the web tour. And there's, there's uh, Cabrera there and Mike Weir. You got guys that won the Masters and U.S. Opens who are both in their late 40s trying to sharpen, they're trying to, <laughs> they know that you can't just waltz out here and yes. start making making big money. These guys are playing some very fine golf. Absolutely. No, it's, um, yeah, it's 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 high level still. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but I was going to ask you, when, when you started, you know, caddying on a professional level, how much did it help you being a former touring professional to bring that side of it to caddying? Do you think it's a it's a really huge advantage that you've been on the other side of that coin before? And and, and did you kind of bring that perspective of a player uh, to the caddying realm when you're when you're kind of out there with Olin or the rest of the guys you've caddied for? Well, yes. I, I, the, the only difficult part was when I started caddying for my brother. If he asked me for advice sometimes I would tell him what I would do or what I was thinking or feeling as opposed to now that was 15 years ago or, or actually longer than that. It was like 20 years ago. 
And I've been carrying on with Olin now for almost five or a little over five. And I, I learned to watch their game. And, and they say, what do you think? It's a six iron. You have to think, okay, <laughs> how far does he hit a six iron or a seven iron or a five iron? Not how far do I hit it? If the wind's blowing, would I hit a cut or would he hit a cut? What's best for him? So becoming a caddy for a player and not standing there saying, oh, this is what I'd do. But knowing Owen's strengths and weaknesses and my brother's, um, the first time I caddied in a major, I caddied for John Cook in 1982 at Southern Hills at the PGA. And we were paired with Tom Weiskopf and Andy Norris. And I, that was, I went out there in 82 to caddy for my brother. It was the first year that he got his tour card because I wanted to play and I wanted to see what those guys were doing. And how they approached it, the practice, what kind of, what are the courses, how fast were the greens, how deep is the rough. I wanted to learn all that before. So it wasn't a shock when I got my game ready to play. Uh, uh, there's quite a few very good caddies or caddies on this tour and other tours that are former professionals, have had tour cards, have, uh, and, can pick up a set of rental clubs and go out and shoot in the seventies. There's a lot of good players out here that, and you know, you have to know the rules so that if you see something that's about to happen, you can say, Hey, hang on a sec. You have to have a vast knowledge of the game to be, uh, on top of it that you're, you know, be able to help as much as you possibly can. Hey everyone, it's Jason from the Sub-70 Podcast. Our 839D titanium driver is finally in stock. It's taken a little bit longer than we wanted, but I think it's worth it. Performance is great. We can custom make it. Different uh, shafts, grips, exactly the way you want the golf club, and the pricing starts with our factory direct model at $249. And we will ship it directly from Sycamore, Illinois, straight out to you. Any fitting questions or anything you need, by all means, let us know. And uh, we can definitely get you a world-class driver at a much better price. Also, the 699 Sub 70 Iron did really, really well in the My Golf Spy 2019 Most Wanted Players Distance Iron. It was very cool for uh, us to see those guys put it through the paces and to rate it against everybody else's. And uh, we did really, really well and very exciting from our standpoint. So if you'd like to see that review, by all means, check it out from the guys at My Golf Spy. Uh, inventory should be back in on the 699 irons in the next couple of weeks. We just sold out faster than we thought, which is good and it's bad, but uh, they are coming back in. So thank you for your patience. Hope you're enjoying the uh, podcast with Sandy and we'll get right back to it. Thanks again for listening. How did you start working for Olin? Was it a, was it a friendship at first? Cause like I said, we've had him on the podcast and I thought he was one of the best guests we've ever had. He's you know extremely intelligent, um, Oh. so informed like it was just a one i had loved the conversation and you know and 
gave me his number. We still kind of text back and forth. Like, he's just a great guy. You can tell. How did that relationship sort of strike up where you started working for him? My brother and I decided it was best after about 15 years to, you know, do something else. Help each, you know, I, I coached him for a while. He took on a different caddy, and I went out and, and I was his coach. I've seen him hit more golf balls than anybody on the planet. I know his swing. I know his, I know his thinking and anyway. And Olin, I had met through the regular tour years ago and we were kind of friends. We're not, we didn't go out and have dinner. I mean, Olin, he doesn't do that really. He plays golf and he likes to read and he's not a nightlife guy. So we didn't see him much off the course. And uh, his longtime caddy, uh, Buck, had gotten into his 70s, and he was diabetic, and he was an old, older black Augusta caddy. And a really good guy, but he came to some hilly courses, and he just couldn't go anymore. And Olin approached me in, uh, in Chicago, and he said, uh, um, Sandy, would you be interested in working a couple of tournaments for me? I'm going to, I'm considering three or four different guys to take on full time. And I want to give everybody like two tournaments to, so see how we get along and see how we work together. And I said, you tell me when and I'll be there. And we worked two tournaments, uh, two other guys worked two tournaments. And then he came up to me, I believe it was the week before we went to Seattle. I think it was, or Yeah. And uh, he said, do you want to work full-time? And uh, I don't know if you can cuss on this. Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> I said, F, yes, I want to. Tell me when and where. And like you said, he, I am one of the luckiest guys on the planet to be selected by Olin to spend my days in these tournaments trying to help him. And he is so clever he didn't start playing golf till he was 19. I don't know if you, if you went through that with him. Yeah, we did. We kind of went through the whole thing. And he, and he the way he reads greens, uh, you know, everybody comments about how well he cuts and he chips, but the way he thinks around a golf course is second to none. They're just the reason I, the only reason he doesn't, win more is because we're limited with uh, distance off the tee and he hits a lot of seven irons and six irons when other guys are hitting wedges and nine irons he's also an ornithologist he knows i believe that's how you pronounce it he, he knows all the birds all across the country when we walk around the golf course i go oh and what's that and he'll say well, that's a scissored tail flycatcher indigenous <laughs> to the region. <laughs> he went, uh, did he tell you that he went to school with uh, President Obama? No, he did not mention that. He went to Occidental for two years with uh, then I, uh, I, he wasn't president then, but he, he, yeah. Yeah, he went to school with him for two years and He's going to a very, very smart guy. I love to listen to him talk about politics and international trade. His Ryder Cup talk, you know, uh, strategies. I mean, Zinger asked him to be an assistant. and he, he, he thinks 
really well, and he's got a great sense of humor. I'm, I'm extremely lucky to be able to spend these years with him in the heat of battle and watching him approach it. And we had a we had a two shot lead this year in Naples. Yeah, going into the last hole, he hit a he had a hybrid that has been in his bag for 15 years, and he, I've seen him hit that club so well, so many different ways, high, low, cut, off a tee, off the ground, digging it out of rough. And he just mishit the shot a little bit and hit it into a spot up near the bleachers. And he never, we ended up making a double and going into a playoff with Bernhard Langer and Miguel Jimenez. And he never lost his cool. He's, He's very methodical about reading greens and what's the proper shot to hit into the green. He's obviously been teaching me a lot about golf and uh, a lot about birds, too, and music. He loves music. Well, I always say you don't play the tour that long and you're that successful and you don't win a U.S. senior, you know, U.S. Open without being right. great for a long period of time. And you, you, right. I mean, there is a level of talent there that he's, he has and he's earned it. And, you know, he's been really good for like 25 years and, you know, he's, he's Olin Brown. Like it's, it's, uh, those guys, like I said, he's played really good golf for a really long period of time. You see, right. So it's, I guess what I'm saying it's legitimate talent. You, it's not a flash in the pan. It's not a one, to a tournament thing. He's been really good oh. for a really long period of time. Well, he's, he's exempted the Colonial because he won there when they were still handing out the lifetime invitation. Yeah, right. And he could probably compete around that golf course still. Oh, I, I lay it on him early in the year, but it happens to fall the same week as the senior PGA. Right. But at 7,000 yards, in 90, 80 to 95 degree weather on a flat course in Colonial, if he plays well, he is very competitive with those guys. Exactly. Well, I also want to ask you about your golfing family. You you come from, it's, it's pretty cool, of the, the, the heritage that you have with your grandfather, the Silver Scott, you know, Tommy Armour. He won three major championships, Hall of Fame member, 25 tour wins, an absolute legend in the game. Uh, when you were young, did you get to spend much time with him? And, and you know, if you did, what was he like as a person? And, you know, what can you, what, what kind of memories do you have of your grandfather? Unfortunately, was not able to, due to my age and his age, and it was only around him a little bit. We, My dad was a... Uh, Real quickly, I was born at the Air Force Academy. My dad was a, a surgeon in the Air Force. And from there, we moved to Madrid uh, for three years. And then from Madrid, he got out of the Air Force and entered private practice of general surgery in Las Vegas, Nevada. And my grandfather lived either in the summer, he was up in New York, in the winter, down in Boca. So we didn't see him a whole lot. And then he died when I was oh, I was eight or nine years old. But we started playing golf, my brother and I, with mom and dad. My mother was an excellent golfer. She was a single-digit 
And when I say single digit, I mean, she was like a two, three, four handicap at the Desert Inn in Las Vegas where we grew up. And my dad was the, uh, he was the club champ three times at the Desert Inn, which is the course where they used to play the tournament of champions. Yeah. You're talking about the old one on the strip, right? That, that, where yes. yeah, that, that's the course you guys grew up playing. Yeah, so now it's uh, the wind, wind yeah. golf course sits on on top of it. Or, but uh, we had a, mom and dad. We started when we were little, and they taught us what grandfather had taught them. And you know, we started when we were little, and when we were <laughs> when we were growing up in Vegas, it was a small town. It was. 100, 150,000 people there. There were five golf courses and maybe six and two or three of them were public golf courses, municipals. Dad used to take us down or dad and mom, they'd take us down to Newport Beach in the summer because in Las Vegas there were four or five tournaments for juniors and in Southern Cal there were 50. So we'd do that and occasionally mom because she would stay down in Newport Beach with us all summer she would tell us things that grandfather had told her about golf and so that was kind of indirect lessons from grandpa I don't know if you know that he only had one eye really he was a he was a, his hands were incredibly strong and he was a machine gunner in World War 1 and those machine guns used to buck like a crazy mule. And his, his his hands being as strong as they were, he was able to hold it still better than the average guy. And he ended up, he got run over or overrun, I should say, by a, one of the first German tanks. And he crawled up on top of it, opened the hatch, and strangled the commander. And <laughs> oh my god. It, yeah, yeah, the guy wouldn't surrender from what I hear. And he, I mean, and then he got sprayed with mustard gas and he was blind in both eyes for about six months. And then he got his eyesight back in his right eye and never in his left. So he played all of his golf with one eye. And to win that many times in the major championships, right, without full vision, that's pretty crazy. Right, to think how well, much yeah, talent he really he, had. Well, he... he learned because of his depth perception that he originally kind of started the, not a yardage book, but yardage markers. This bunker, I remember I, it's about a seven iron to the front and a six iron to the back, or this tree over here is like a five iron into this green. And yeah, it's, it's challenging to play golf without depth perception, especially in bunkers. My grandmother, Consuelo, she was uh, she was good for some stories that were also, you know, not all golf. My grandfather and Babe Ruth were good friends, and they used to play a lot of golf together. And she told me one story I'll share with you that that uh, the two of them were Babe and my grandfather were playing golf, and they were supposed to meet my grandmother and Babe's girl. Uh, in New York to get on a train to go to like Philadelphia, I think it was. And they were late. 
because they were playing golf and then they were having a couple of cocktails and they were late getting to the train station and she said she heard the train whistle blow and the train started to move and then it stopped and the engineer came back to the cabin that they were in and said it appears there's a car blocking the train I think uh, we're going to be a little bit well grandfather and Babe Booth had parked their car on the tracks to block the train <laughs> Hey, smart thinking. <laughs> you know, if you got to catch a train, you might as well block its path with a car, I guess. Uh, well, and your Babe Ruth, right? Like, what are they going to Your Tommy Armour and Babe Ruth, like. Yeah, yeah. Like, who's going to say you can't get on? Exactly. No. And then he, he did other. He signed Ben Hogan and Byron Nelson to McGregor and helped design their golf clubs the woods, the irons, putters, wedges. Um, you know, that I was fortunate enough to, when I moved to Dallas, I spent a number of lunches and some sessions on the driving range with Byron Nelson. And he told me some stories that he said in 1944, he goes, I really had figured out, <coughs> excuse me, how it, how to hit the ball straight and keep it under control and not have to, you know, practice. And, or I didn't have any uh, space balls or foul balls in my golf game. And I won nine tournaments. I think he said I won nine tournaments in 44, and your grandfather came to me with a brand-new set of irons. And I, he, I said to him, I said, oh, please, Mr. Armored, don't ask me to change clubs or don't make me change clubs, you know, I really like these clubs that I'm playing with right now. These are the shafts fit, the heads, I love them. And he said, the grandfather said, you know, okay, you love those. Keep playing them. They're McGregor's. You know, your contract's still honored. And 45, we, had, we all know what happened there. Mm -hmm. Correct. And there's some, some, some of these guys today, they get, you know, they get such big contracts change clubs uh, Danny Lee used to practice out in Las Colinas and a hell of a golfer great golf swing I, I used to think his golf swing and Adam Scott's were very similar and he would ask me to watch him hit balls now and then and I'd, I'd say Danny he he was leading in almost every category on the web tour and he got his tour card and I said whatever you do do not go out there on the tour stand there on the range and hit golf balls and try different equipment. You know how to hit a golf ball. You know what your clubs do. If you go out there and start changing, you're going to have to learn those clubs. And it's not a place to learn. There's no learning curve on the tour for equipment. What you have to learn out there is the golf courses. I said, play as many practice holes as you want, but don't change your equipment. The first thing you do. And well, he, he went out there and started hanging out with, uh, you know, KJ Choi and the other Koreans. And they got him to change equipment and they changed coaches. And I wasn't just, don't get me wrong. I wasn't just full coach or anything by that, by no means. But he started changing everything, and 
every once in a while you see some guy win a major and the next thing you know they got a contract with a different company and then you don't hear from them for a while well obviously byron byron nelson knew that lesson a little bit right he he knew how far he hit a six iron he knew how far he hit a nine iron with those particular clubs and he didn't think that it there's a, there's a learning curve. Anytime you change, even if you change a golf ball, there's a learning curve there. Correct at the high at the highest level of how it at reacts. The, oh, these guys these guys can tell the difference. If you hand them a golf club, and if you hand them a set of their clubs, and one of the grips has one extra layer of masking tape on it, they can feel it immediately. Their sense of touch and feel is so high and so sharp they can tell the weight of the club they just look at it they can set it down and look at it and tell the loft and lie is off in an instant well back to your grandfather did you ever get to hold or see any of those trophies from you know the the claret jug yeah. the majors that he's had did you ever get to put them in your hands and actually hold them well i I've, I've held the claret jug and i've seen his name etched in it and he had some trophies. He didn't have a claret jug, so to say. And he didn't have a U.S. Open trophy. They had the medals. Um, a, we have a couple of trophies from, like, the old tournament at Pinehurst, the North-South. They gave out, like, a silver platters and uh, silver bowls. We have a number of those. We had some of those some of his clubs. Um, some, he was not a big collector from what I understand of his, he would, when he went over and won the British open at Carnoustie, when he came back to the States, he gave his caddy in the States, he held his bag out and he said, you know, pick any of the two clubs that you want. And that gentleman, I can't remember his name, took the three iron and the six iron. I don't know why, but he did. And he, uh, later in his life, he approached Tommy and I at a tour event and gave us those clubs. He said, they belong to your family. That was pretty cool. Yeah. And I mean, to hold the claret jug though, with your grandfather's name on it, right? Like how, how cool is that? Right to say, I mean, uh, he held history, and then you're holding the same history. I mean, that family lineage, like that, has to be pride. Cool. I mean, like I can't imagine what that must be like to see your grandfather's name on that trophy when you're when you're looking at it as a former professional yourself and still involved in the game. Like it has to be it has to be one hell of a cool feeling. Very cool. Very very fortunate. Um, my dad was his only his only child. Very fortunate, you know, <laughs> and to to grow up with that kind of heritage in such a, a wonderful game, uh, you know, it's, it's I thank my lucky stars because of my name and my bloodline. It's it it has opened some doors for me in golf, but it doesn't help get the ball in the hole. <laughs> well, unless the DNA is pretty good, that's been passed on from a couple generations of uh, the ability to, <laughs> to put a good swing on it. Um, right. I, was, I was also going to ask you about growing up in Las Vegas and like 
the era that you did, that had to be an interesting backdrop to grow up in. And there has to be some interesting characters and stories from, from growing up near the Strip. I always, you know, when you, when, you, when you think about how Vegas was different in the 60s and 70s, there has to be some, oh. A, it's got to be interesting, and you have to have some great stories of characters maybe your parents met or you met as a kid. There has to, you know, probably bumped into oh, a few definitely. interesting characters. How, what was that like definitely. back in that era? That was, uh, that was the mid-60s when we moved to Las Vegas, and it was, uh, being a small town, you knew damn near everybody that was around the, uh, we used to go over to Las Vegas Country Club, and there was a, a a tower, a residential tower in the middle of the golf course. It's still there. It's called Regency Tower. And there was a, a man named Mo Dalek that lived in the top one of the penthouses. And he was he was a mobster with Bugsy Siegel and those boys. Uh, I think they reference him in a couple of those movies. And when he used to come out of the clubhouse. And we were kids hanging around in the putting green, putting for, you know, Cokes or whatever. If you saw him come out of the clubhouse and you were first to greet him near the golf carts, which were staged right there by the men's locker room exit, and you'd offer you, oh, how are you, Mr. Dales? Would you like a ride home? And he'd say, well, yes. And you'd get in the golf cart drive him down the first fairway to the Regency Towers, and that was worth 20 bucks. <laughs> that, there'd be kids lined up 20 deep for that one, right? Yeah, and uh, we used to play golf when we got a little bit older. Guys like Amarillo Slim and Benny Binion. Oh, really? um, you met some those of, guys? Some of, some of those, yeah. Some of those older professional uh, Jack, oh, it was Jack's name, last name. Jay Sarno built the Caesars. These guys used to play golf for huge amounts of money and cash. Occasionally, they would ask us to just go play golf. And they would have maybe four golfers playing a round of golf. And they there would be six, eight, ten carts following us down the fairway. And they would take. They would just bet. I'll bet you. Uh, I'll bet you five grand that he hits it closer to the hole than than Tommy does. Or I'll bet. I'll bet uh, Chuck Thorpe, Jim Thorpe's brother, used to come out and play in some of these gambling games and whatever. Uh, I'll bet Chuck makes that putt for. Uh, I'll bet you ten grand. And they're paying. They had huge brown bags of cash, and they would. 18 holes of it. They just weren't propos- necessarily... Proposition and betting just, everything around. Just literally make a bet on it, five grand, let's go. Yeah, just on this shot. And then when there were games, I played uh, um, Jack Wagner, the actor. Yeah. He and I, he, he's an excellent golfer. I've known him forever. We got into a couple of games, and some of those guys, they bet so heavy that they would actually say, okay, there's no rules. <laughs> meaning, meaning you could put gasoline on your clubs. Right. The only thing you couldn't do was move the ball. But if you, you wanted 20, 22 golf clubs in your bag, knock yourself out. 
Oh, there's a couple of them had their, they all had their, basically their own golf cart with a couple of sets on the back and a caddy. And they would go play for so much money that they found that if they said, okay, the only rule is every time you hit it, it counts as one. Right. That's it. So that, that nobody shot each other. Right. <laughs> right. Cause other, right. Otherwise, right. There'd be, how do you, how do you. Exactly. That's the fairest way yeah, to do it say, playing for those kind of guys, right? Well, yeah, because these guys, are, I mean, they're, they're carrying around bags of cash with fifty, hundred thousand, 100,000, you know, lots of cash. And they were, hey, you cheated. And all of a sudden that opened a can of worms where, right. you know, gunplay could have been involved. <laughs> but if there's no rules except it's don't move the ball. Yeah, don't move the ball. Away. And every time you hit it, it's, it's, one. it's one. Right. It takes that element out of it.